Welcome to Making a Difference, a Junction Journalism production. I'm Billy Eason. And I'm Brad McGee. This episode of Making a Difference has been produced by journalism students at Deakin University on Wathorong Country. Coming up on the program, a story about how much influence social media influencers really have. And we'll go behind the curtains to hear firsthand from those thrilled to be back on stage. But first, after floods caused damage across Victoria and New South Wales this spring, Will Tremaine and Garbus Sinossian explore the dangers of a La Nina weather pattern. Other people are living in sort of tents and caravans and sort of mobile homes in areas which are even more flood-prone than where their houses were. So in many cases, people are more vulnerable than they were before. The person you heard before us is Dr. Catherine Haynes, a research manager with Natural Hazards Research Australia, an honorary senior research fellow with Macquarie University and the University of Wollongong. She was explaining how the Eastern Australian floods have left many displaced and vulnerable to future events just like it. A third La Nina has been announced by the Bureau of Meteorology indicating another summer of excessive rain for New South Wales, Queensland and Victoria. So a third La Nina in a row uh, means that it's going to be wetter than average in southeastern Australia, particularly Queensland and New South Wales. It's the third year in a row, which is fairly unusual, and it's going to bring a lot of rain and sort of humidity to these areas. Communities, I think it's... Not great news because they've just sort of, you know, come out of some very wet weather and there's been a lot of flooding and it means that there's lots of flooding going to be likely. Communities really need to start thinking, I guess, ahead of time about what they're going to do, bearing in mind that a lot of people are still not living in their properties and people are living in temporary accommodation. The 2022 Eastern Australian floods were disastrous, leaving 22 dead, properties destroyed and insurance claims of up to $4.8 billion. The way we protect ourselves against devastating weather events like this is to plan ahead. The one thing that I could suggest would have averted this this hazard from becoming a disaster of this magnitude is government putting in money for adaptation. Now, government is putting money to relocate people from very risky areas onto highlands or slightly safer areas. But now they have to put in at least five to 20 times more amount of money than what they would have had to if they if they provided money beforehand. But whether or not people would have moved is another question altogether. That was Matul Vahanvati, a senior lecturer at RMIT University in the discipline of sustainability and urban planning with a focus on resilience to disasters and climate change of housing and communities. As a country... We are not well prepared against floodings. We are very well prepared for fires and we have this early warning signs and everything set in place, but we are not that prepared for floods. And that includes recovery. This year's floods left more than 5,000 homes completely uninhabitable. And right now, getting victims from this year's floods homes is at a crawl. Another possible event of the same scale would be completely overwhelming. Not knowing whether you should rebuild in that location, or if you do, you know, you should significantly change how you design your home. A lot of uncertainty through the government not having sorted out how they're going to do those buybacks or how they're going to give people grants to raise their home or 
redesign their home, there's still a huge amount that has been undecided and hasn't been announced, which has left people in a lot of limbo. But what do we do? Even people who don't live in these areas, we get our voices heard. Show the reality of the damage these events cause and join up with people who want to help. Back to the example in the Northern Rivers region of New South Wales, lots of people who were kind of latent environmentalists, they, you know, they understood what was going on, but they weren't necessarily active. Now many of them have seen that this is what climate change looks like. And there's a real renewed sense of climate change and environmental activism in that region, I think, as a result of the flooding that they've experienced now for several years. Uh, if they just do a web search for Friends of the Earth Australia, you'll find the local groups and you'll find the la local campaigns and you can sign up for a newsletter or get involved with a local group and we'd love to have you on board. That's Cam Walker, the Cam Vance Coordinator with Friends of the Earth, a federation of independent local groups working together for environmental sustainability. Communities get shocked to the core when these events happen and barriers break down. I think you you definitely see that um, sort of in the immediate aftermath of an event like this. You see communities and families and people coming together, even communities that you know have had a history of being sort of a bit divided, you know, different groups of people. In events like this, you very much see them come together, help each other. You know, things that have happened in the past are forgotten. But I don't think it lasts forever. I think, you know, once people sort of go back to their everyday, some of those divisions come back again. But certainly during events, absolutely, you know, community really does come together. As long as we stay aware, we will be better prepared. Will Tremaine. God bless an ocean. Thanks for listening. Up next, Grace McKenzie talks to renowned epidemiologist Catherine Bennett about equity in health and STEM fields. looked at me and then looked quizzical then he looked back at the form and then he looked to the guy to the left of me and looked back at me and he was just hesitating and I, I thought don't do it don't do it but sure enough he then took a step left and said good evening Professor Bennett to the gentleman beside me and he thought it was more likely that an elderly Sri Lankan gentleman would be firstly called Bennett and secondly have a name Catherine <laughs> Then I that I could be a professor. That was Catherine Bennett, one of Australia's most prominent epidemiologists. She's had to fight to get to the position she's in today and deal with her fair share of ignorance along the way. And whilst the world of science has continued to evolve, that doesn't necessarily mean we're all on a level playing ground just yet. Last week, the Australian government released their 2022 STEM Equity Monitor, Australia's annual data resource of women participation in science, technology, engineering and math. And this year's statistics hold some promise, with the number of women enrolled in STEM courses jumping by 24% in just five years. But there were some worrying statistics. A five-year study of STEM graduates beginning in 2011 found that by 2016, only one in 10 STEM qualified women worked within a STEM industry in comparison to over one in five of their STEM qualified male counterparts. So that begs the question, what can be done to keep women in the workforce? For Bennett, she believes the answer is in the deconstruction of gender roles within the industry. Do you think part of the way ahead around gender is to say, gender is not the discriminator people think it is. If you're a female, it doesn't mean you're going to have babies. 
you know, if necessarily. If you're a male, it doesn't mean you might not be a primary caregiver for a baby. If you're a male, it doesn't mean you're automatically going to be better at science than a female. So I do think putting things in place and trying to level the playing field isn't just, it's got to be some positive discrimination to try and level things out in the interim. But it's also about trying to create a playing field where gender no longer matters. And when you get to that point, then good scientists will become good scientists and will stay in their jobs regardless of gender. This year's STEM Equity Monitor found that less than a third of STEM educators are female. Priscilla Augustina, a master's student and researcher at Bio21 Institute, says that while a large number of her colleagues are female, a disproportionate number of her superiors are male. Most of these senior researchers are always men. I just find that interesting because despite there being probably more females that are taking these courses at uni and are doing these PhD student roles, we see less of them achieve. For Bennett, the industry's still got a fair way to go, but she believes a brighter, more diverse future is just around the corner. And it takes me back to years ago, uh, we had uh, the first female pilot in the Australian Air Force graduated and she was interviewed and I, I thought her, her response was great because I just said, is this a great thing for women? And she said, it will be a great thing for women when it's not newsworthy. And it's, it's a bit the same, you know, it shouldn't be novel to be a woman in STEM. In our next story, Chloe Williams and Ashley Creveld talk to those celebrating our return to the stage after some tough pandemic years. Oscar Wilde once said, The stage is not merely the meeting place of all the arts, but is also the return of art to life. But what happens if life and theatre as we know it comes to a staggering Halt. Community theatre director Melanie Xavier knows the impact of COVID-19 and lockdowns all too well. Not just with postponing the show three times, keeping cast engaged was hard. Also recasting stage managers, assistant stage managers, gonna do me day. Ensuring cast and crew could commit to new season dates wasn't the only problem for their production of In the Heights even just like price increases. So things that were like quoted pre-COVID had a 20% increase on like lighting and sound because there's also one inflation, but to these uh, areas of the arts that had been on shut down and lost money. But can you blame theatre contractors for charging more? In an industry that basically shut down for almost two years due to the pandemic, their financial burden to stay afloat has been tough. According to I Lost My Gig Australia survey by the Australian Performing Arts Market, $340 million of revenue has been lost from industry professionals since March 2020. Simone Pugla is the owner and producer of the Melbourne theatre venue, The Butterfly Club. We had to basically put all our money into not closing down over two years. So whatever cushion we had built over the previous eight years went. We just stopped having any expenses other than uh, uh, what we couldn't get out of, like the lease. The government did step in for some funding for the live theatre venues affected by lockdown. But there was a program called the, the Victorian Live Music Venues Fund, which was specific COVID relief uh, for Victorian Live Music Venues. That is uh, 
specifically why we didn't shut down. The club has a turnover of about 1.2 million, didn't replace uh, what we do normally do, but that paired with the tenancy relief scheme where landlords had to step up and share some of the pain. JobKeeper allowed us to maintain team cohesion. You don't make money out of JobKeeper. JobKeeper comes in if you pay it out to an employee. Post-lockdown, though, the theatre curtain was still, well, closed. Vaccinations meant Australians felt closer to reaching a new normal. However, infection rates were still high, with multiple waves of COVID peaking over the last few years. We've cancelled hundreds of shows, especially in 2021, when Melbourne uh, COVID-0 ended in May uh, 2021, and after that it became almost routine to cancel shows over and over. Cancelling individual seasons of performances affects not only the performers and crews of the shows, but also the casual staff employed as ushers, front of house and bar staff of each venue. Almost 900,000 people in the arts and recreation services industry had their employment slashed from March to April alone in the first year of the pandemic, according to the Australian Bureau of Statistics. Those lucky enough to still be employed by the live theatre sector had a hard job staying afloat. Kylie Baker from Perth worked all through the pandemic. I was meant to be booking uh, theatre shows, music, DJs. That was obviously extremely difficult because that was literally just after the lockdowns and ended in Perth. So that was tough. Changing of expectations, shifting of the border issues, shows having to cancel left, right and centre. We had no idea what was coming. Burnout for performers and those in the industry is commonplace. I actually did leave that job because it was just unrealistic. I cared about my job and I cared about creating a space for people to still be able to perform. Ultimately, you're thrown under the bus so repeatedly by something that is completely out of your control. Simone believes lockdown will have some long-term detrimental effects. There is no law of nature that says the theatre must exist. The risk here is systemic. There are uh, certain cohorts of performers who no longer exist because having two years without graduating uh, students that have been on stage will create a, a gap of new artists that will affect the program. But are things looking up? They are, for theatregoers at least. According to the Australian Council, two-thirds of audiences say they are now ready to attend the theatre, which is a marked increase from earlier this year. We have about the same sales as we had in 2019. What has changed is the sales story. We are noticing a very distinct shift in booking last minute. In the Heights is already sold more than a thousand more than their top selling show. Like some of us, Kylie has gleaned some important lessons from COVID. For me, it's, it's not necessarily about abandoning the arts completely. It's about reassessing how I work in the industry. A move to online in these socially distant times was also a key feature. Some silver linings are, for instance, uh, the fact that everyone knows how to use a QR code. I'm not suggesting that it was worth it, but look, we got that. So that's nice. As Australia gets back to a new normal, we can only hope that our industry bounces back. We need to be lucky for a couple more years before we can dig ourselves out of the hole. Next, Jonathan Peck and Ali Calafiore investigate why teachers are leaving school for good. Every scientist, politician, engineer and mechanic 
have been educated by teachers. In theory, teaching should be one of the most respected and sought-after professions in all of our society. However, this is not the case. According to Grad Australia, application numbers for teaching courses have sharply dropped by 47% since 2021, and a recent survey by the Victorian branch of the Australian Education Union revealed that more than 80% of public school principals are concerned that staffing vacancies will become much harder to fill. A teacher crisis is rapidly forming, not only due to the lack of applicants, but perceived lack of respect and care for the current workforce. Recently, there has been an increase in teachers leaving the profession. One of these teachers is Xander Kaufman, a respected language teacher in rural Victoria who left his public school profession after struggling to ensure he was providing sufficient education to every student. We thought it was really rare to see a class size under 23. I had 26 students. It was just really, really difficult to provide each student with the support that they needed, like the the one-on-one, like, hey, how are you going with this work? Like, how are you going as a person? It just physically wasn't possible to get around to every student every day. Xander also believes that a lack of proper government funding to public schools is what's hurting teachers the most, with it causing added stress to the profession. One thing that was extremely stressful was our school was going through budget troubles. We weren't asked to, but you basically had to try and justify your job to leadership to be like, hey, please don't fire me. You need me for this reasons. Like you you go and you teach an entire full day of classes and then you have to worry about your school is going broke. According to reports, there was a scheduled 4.6 billion cut in public school funding by the coalition in their 2022 budget that would have left public schools underfunded by $6.5 billion. Labor has promised it will bridge that gap between the underfunded public and overfunded private schools, yet Warnable teacher Ian Clark believes the situation isn't that simple. There's not a magic bullet. You've got to really shake the system up. I'm not optimistic that that's going to be a quick change. Education has been underfunded for just eons, so funding needs to be really lifted. Ian believes that the extra funding should firstly go straight into the workforce instead of infrastructure. Smaller sizes just gives you that ability to really get to know the students better, connect with their learning styles, and just give better support in class and out of class. In August, the Victorian government announced it would provide a $41.7 million boost to the education sector in order to attract more teachers to public schools, particularly in hard-to-staff subjects such as languages, math, and science. The Victorian government has also received a 10-year plan of recommendations by the Australian Education Union on how to get ahead of the shortage crisis. Some of the recommendations they are calling for include an increase in number of support staff in classes in order to ease the workload off teachers. Something Deborah James of the Independent Education Union of Victoria and Tasmania agrees with. We need to be as creative, innovative and efficient as we can be about the things we're asking teachers to do and look and see whether any of the things we're asking them to do, if those tasks could be done by others or done in a different way to take the burden off teachers. In addition to the AEU's recommendations, Deborah wants governments to start listening to the experiences of teachers currently in the sector. She believes that an understanding of what the workload is like will lead to the profession becoming more valued than it is. It's about proper respect and proper fairness and proper recognition, I think, of exactly what goes into doing it because everyone wants great teachers. This complex issue doesn't look like it's going anywhere anytime soon, with the University of Sydney predicting 
that New South Wales alone will approximately need 11,000 to 13,000 new teachers by 2031. What is clear is that teachers are desperately looking for proper management, respect and innovation in order for the next generation to receive the proper education. Now, Jenna Carr follows Australia's first ever dental therapy dog, a pooch that's helping anxious patients cope with their first visit to the dentist. Labrador Bruce is a trained doctor from Warrigal Dental Care and lives with owner Belinda Bruman. She said Bruce loved his work and specialised in helping anxious patients during their appointments. Until you see it in action, it's really hard to believe the impact that a therapy dog or a therapy pet can have on somebody's anxiety or their stress. And I don't know what it is about Bruce, but he knows how to read people. So if somebody is really anxious, he tends to go up and sit on their feet. Miss Bruman said COVID greatly impacted people suffering from anxiety and their dental health. The pandemic has definitely caused a lot of mental health and anxiety issues and people have delayed dental treatment just because obviously the restrictions and what was safe for people to do at the time. So definitely seeing the impacts of that on the dental industry. Anthony Joram, a University of Melbourne Emirates professor, said people with specific phobias found it difficult being exposed to what made them anxious. Part of the problem people get when they get to that extreme end with anxiety disorders is that they avoid, that they cope with what makes them anxious by avoiding it. And then the avoidance becomes the problem. Mr. Jorm said therapy animals could allow people to cope with an anxious situation. Watching a film of somebody going to the dentist or just sitting in a dentist chair without getting any examination or anything of that sort, even that can be quite anxiety provoking. So having something that enhances their relaxation while they're doing that can help them become involved in exposure. Professor Joram said it is important that people are aware that anxiety is usually a positive thing until it starts to affect daily talks. I think we've got to be careful to both increase awareness of anxiety and treatments available and how to help ourselves with self-help, how to assist others if they're experiencing extreme anxiety without pathologising normal anxiety, to see it as a normal good thing. Miss Brewman said Bruce loved being a normal dog and getting into trouble at home when he's not helping patients at work. He just loves playing chasey, loves a good cuddle. He's got his own spot on the couch. If you sit in his spot on the couch, he will sit in front of you until you move. So he's a very particular dog. He likes his ways. In our final story, Phoebe Griffiths and Riley Patterson-Moore investigate just how much influence social media influencers really have. A day in the life of a teenage girl scrolling through social media may sound something like this. This is what I ate in a day. So Ooh, I gained nice. a little bit more weight than I thought. I have a package from White Fox. Mm-hmm. And summer shorts season. It's right around the corner. So let's try on my summer shorts. Ooh, it's not going so well. So. Okay, there's like a lot.
This may sound harmless, however, research has shown that influencers tend to promote unrealistic lifestyles and expectations, leading to materialism, low self-esteem, self-objectification, body dissatisfaction, insecurities, eating disorders, and other mental health conditions, especially in teenage girls. Influencers may inspire their audience to behave pro-socially or live a healthier lifestyle. However, they also demonstrate poor behaviour as the influencer's lifestyle tend to involve a hell of a lot of partying. So when social media users are constantly flooded with conflicting content online, what kind of impact does this have on one's behaviour? Kerry Smith, mother of three, says that she definitely notices social media impacting her children. It creates unrealistic expectations and a big focus on material possessions. My eldest daughter has been a lot more focused on what brands that she wears in comparison to her friends or celebrities on social media. Some influences are changing the way that new generations live. When we're at family events, my eldest daughter will be on her phone, completely shut off from the family, not interacting, just in the vortex of social media, scrolling away. The recent boom of influences is quite concerning for many parents as their children are exposed to perfect bodies or perfect lifestyles, which greatly impacts their mental health. It worries me that teenagers and children are constantly exposed to these images that create a false sense of body image that's not attainable. A lot of these influencers have had plastic surgery or or are using filters or posing in a way, and it's not necessarily sustainable through diet and exercise. The influencer world is not all doom and gloom. Influencer and Mum Perezzi has her own body positivity account where she aims to inspire people and promote self-development. A lot of us spend so much time on social media nearly every single day. So I think that it's really important that we do share and see positive messages on social media so that we can consume positivity. Because if we're looking at things that are negative, obviously that's going to impact your mental health. Even influencers themselves are impacted by other influencers, both positively and negatively. I am 100% influenced by what I see on social media. I am very intentional about the pages that I follow. So with influencers flooding one's social media feed, do they actually impact viewers? 19-year-old Jasmine McAuliffe says she's easily influenced by the contents she sees online. I definitely get so influenced by the influencers in Melbourne, especially, and always go to where they shop. Would you say it's hard to decipher what is, like if someone's promoting something, whether they actually like it or if it's just sponsored? 100%. I always see it. I'm like, does she really even like what she's wearing? Or like, yeah, I don't know. It is hard to see that. Jasmine says she has noticed it can have a negative effect on her mental health, however. I definitely look at the girls on social media and how like beautiful like they are and how amazing their bodies are and like You know, like, definitely, like, want to look like them sometimes, like, when you have moments, like, when you feel insecure, like, why can't I just look like them and take, like, a nice photo like them and, like, be able to fit in the clothes, like, how they do, and yeah. So, perhaps think about how you are influenced by what you see online, whether it be positive or negative. And that story by Phoebe Griffiths and Riley Patterson-Moore finishes our program. And don't forget, there's a new episode of Making a Difference every month. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Brad McGee. And I'm Billy Eason. Thanks for listening.